The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. I'm delighted that we're joined now by one of the most familiar faces on our television for decades, who's no longer on it because he's retired from RTE, but he's used his time well to write his autobiography, Never Better. Tommy Gorman, how are you? Delighted to see you um, in the flesh, uh, in your own patch. Um, unusual, having been an RTE man, um, I used to call the commercial sector the pirates. Uh, <laughs> so uh, it's very interesting uh, to be seeing the working environment and to feel the different vibe, uh, the different age profile. Uh, so that's a learning experience for me too, Matt. Do you miss television? Uh, well, I miss I miss work. Uh, I miss RTE. I miss I miss traction. Uh, I miss doing something and just seeing the ripple. Um, so, uh, and that's that's a strange thing to get used to. Uh, but um, you sort of rally and you regroup and you say, well, what am I going to do for the next while? And yeah, but before I get to that, was retirement forced upon you by age? Because, you know, we are now having the change to pension rules that people will be allowed to continue working until they're 70 if they so want. I can imagine you would have liked perhaps to keep going until 70. Well, I reckon... Work keeps me alive. Uh, with the medical condition I have, work is the perfect distraction because if you had a pain uh, and you started working, pain actually goes away. It's wonderful in that way. Um, so I need that. I don't just miss it. I need it. So when you get to... I was on the staff. I was really lucky uh, to be on the staff of RTE uh, and the type, the type of pension I have. Uh, it's defined benefits... Uh, and that's gold plated, very, very fortunate, uh, and something I readily acknowledge. So there's an element of moral fairness about if you have such a good job, um, there's, a, I think that there's a, as, as I understand it anyway, that it's right that other people should get a chance to do what's a wonderful job, a dream job. Um, so that's the practical side of it. Um, but then you have your own competing instincts where, uh, you want you feel like I don't want to die at sixty six, uh, and I just don't want to stop. And you'll never find me getting on the back of a Ryanair in the middle of the week going to Krakow, uh, you know, to kill time. Uh, I'm not that person. I don't want to be having those kind of times. I'm not in that space. I'm still curious. Uh, I'm, I'm still interested in journalism. I'm watching what's going on. I'm and which fascinated. is why I read what you write for the currency on a regular basis. Yeah, that's a, that's a great chance. Um, to, because over the last few years I sort of fell in love with the written word I thought the RTE site would be a chore Declan McBennett was who first encouraged me to start writing for it and I got to love that it was like going back to something I did when I was a print journalist when I started in journalism and that was great and I loved the, the, I loved the impact it was beginning to have so when the guys from The Currency came along with What's a New Project um, and they're good fellas like Ian and Tom and Dion Fanning smashing guy and I like I like what I like what they're doing, and what I suppose intrigues me about it, Matt, is it's new media. Like I'm watching all this influencer stuff and podcast stuff, and you know the way the business is changing. And I love what the guys have managed to do. Like they've over five thousand subscribers, and you know they come from a Sunday Business Post and Sunday Independent, and you know the guys yourself, and they seem to have struck on a formula 
that's working because they haven't got huge production costs. You know, they don't need transmitters or they're not putting out print. Uh, and the access is interesting. And um, But it also gives you an opportunity to bring your experience and wisdom to what you can write. Well, yeah, I suppose I'm like the old fella with them. Uh, you know, the, you know, do you remember, I don't know if you ever watched those Magnificent Seven Westerns when they'd be rounding up the fellas who had retired as gunslingers. I'm the old gunslinger that they've gone to uh, and uh, they trust me. And it's lovely because there was a bit of a gap in their product for politics, North, South, British, Irish, European, uh, and they allow me to write about anything I like, including sport. So I'm, I'm actually excited by that. And now that the book is done, I'll go back to them. And I like being part of something new. You mentioned being in pain at times and sort of having something to get your mind off that. Remind us of the type of cancer that you've lived with from 1994 and how that causes you pain. Um... I have what are called neuroendocrine tumours um, and what they do is they they grow slowly but they secrete hormones uh, and the hormones can set your pulse racing, they can produce excess amounts of serotonin, they can just mess up how your digestive system works, give you the runs, stuff like that and a lot of the time it's the impact of the uh, hormones that gets you. Um, so you generally have a primary. You can have a primary on the mid-gut. You can have a primary in the lungs. You can have a primary in the small bowel. You can be really lucky and get a primary on the pancreas. It's the only form of pancreatic cancer that when I hear people telling me they've got a Nets condition with a pancreatic primary, I jump for joy because generally uh, bog-standard pancreatic cancer is such a difficult disease, uh, relentless, painful, but Nets primary, there's hope with it. But anyway, in my case, in 1994, I had a primary in the mid-gut, I had secondaries in the mesentery area, and I had a liver uh, with uh, tumours dotted like pepper and salt on the liver. And the big thing is, do they become so numerous and so annoying that they stop the functioning of the liver. So I have about 30 or more of those on the liver still. Um, and what they've done over at different stages is they've cut out different bits of me. They've scoured my liver to sort of try and set the clock back again uh, and trying to make sure that liver function continues. So how they treat it is, apart from the surgery and so on and the different treatments, I've had processes like radiofrequency ablation, radioembolization. Um, I take a, a monthly drug. every. I take it every 28 days uh, and it uh, reduces the impact of the hormones uh, and it stops the pace of the tumour growth and in some cases it's, it completely kills some tumours. So I've been taking that drug for about 20 years. I get scanned every four to six months uh, and the system is getting worn down by it. Uh, so that's the pain I talk about. Sometimes it's a pain in my liver. Sometimes it goes across the stomach. And basically what's happening is the tubes within my system are shriveling. Uh, and the liver somehow is still managing to function. Uh, but what will eventually happen is I just run out of road. But like it's been a very long road already. That's such a thing. 28 years of this. It's a yeah. long time to live with that. It's like... That's where the, in some ways, that's where the title Never Better comes from. Like, I've known lots of people along the way who haven't been so lucky. Um, the most high-profile person with the disease was Steve Jobs. 
Steve Jobs had nets. Uh, I think Nick Robinson, who presents the Today programme on, on BBC, I think he had maybe a long primary. But I, I've known the late Jim Mitchell, Lord Reston, uh, had nets, and Jim had a liver replacement. Uh, and Jim wasn't as lucky as me. So, like, I'm very, very conscious that, like, the survival figures when I was diagnosed, like, I had a 50% chance of living beyond five years, and after that, all bets were off, and here I am. So, um, does whatever that, happens Does that account as well, you, embracing what time has left you, is why you've worked so hard as well? Some people would probably say, you know, why work why not enjoy other things oh, in life? But you've actually embraced oh, oh, all types of work. Absolutely. Um, I've, I've always found work a privilege. Um, I need to work. Uh, the fact that I've had a job that, you know, gives me such satisfaction uh, is, is a bonus. But I feel in my case, if I didn't have work, I think I'd be dead. I think if I had time to sit and mope and moan and worry, uh, like there were many days... I used to take a drug called um, interferon before they moved me on to what's an easier one on the system. Like interferon was like taking lead into your system. And only for, there was a story to go to, you know, if I had stayed in bed, I'd still, you know, it was leading in one direction. But the fact that you had to get out of bed and concentrate on something and get absorbed in it, it really was the perfect alternative. It was great distraction therapy. So, you know, plus the fact that I had such, like, trust uh, in the job I had and it was so meaningful, um, like, it was a no-brainer, really. You've interviewed presidents, prime ministers, terrorists, all sorts of people. But given the importance, particularly, of the work you were doing in letting us all know of what was happening in the peace process, how does it feel like that for many people you'll be best remembered for an interview with Roy Keane? Um, that was part of uh, that was part of a peace process as well, well wasn't it? Yeah, peace process. <laughs> you know, one that one that kind of failed. But yeah, I, I we better re- put this in context yeah. for people who might not remember the, the. Well, we all of a certain age remember Saipan in two thousand and two. Roy came home, and you got the exclusive interview with Roy Keane back in Manchester, which led many people to hope that you could end up being not just the reporter who did the interview, but the man who could help broker a return to the World Cup in Japan and South Korea. Well, you you see, I had been back in Belfast for a year or two at that stage. I was always interested in sport. I had seen United's big games, Champions League games. I was there the night in uh, Turin when Keane brought them back from the day. Against Juventus. Yeah. And I was there the night that he couldn't play, uh, the night they won the final. In Barcelona. Yeah. I was also there in the first game against the Netherlands when Ireland went two up. Jason McAteer got a wonderful goal that night and we were two ahead and the Dutch came back and I saw Keane coming off and I saw McCarthy and Keane that night. Like you saw Because everyone thinks about the photograph from the uh, reverse fixture which Ireland won 1-0. That's right. But that night... That night there was absolute tension in the air too because one thing Ferguson taught Keane was when you have the opportunity to draw blood, you have to kill. Yeah. None of this, let them live for another while. You have to put the knife into the heart and twist it and kill them. And Keane was good at that, and that's what they did in Turin. So I think you could see in Keane that he had such standards as an assassin, you know, as a winner. 
that um, he just didn't want to be along, you know, on a busman's holiday, all the journos, the FAI up at the front and started performing monkeys to players. Everyone's, you know, out for a laugh off to Saipan, have a bit of R&R. Or. Like Keane was off drink at that time. Keane was running out of time. Keane knew this was a great team and you could see where it all came from. But the interview, um, I was hoping he'd come back um, you know, you talk about, you know, peace process and bringing that kind of mentality to it. I remember I knew John O'Mahony in Galway at the time because I was doing his training videos in Galway GAA. He's my friend. And I knew what John had done with the Donlan brothers was, you know, tension in the Galway camp at one stage. And John had got them all together and John had got the best out of the collective and he won two All-Irelands with Galway. And I remember saying to Keane, because Keane was a GA guy, look what happened to the Donlands. And then I threw in a reference or two to Northern Ireland. And he was looking at me as if I had four heads in me, like, who's this gobshite across the table? But um, I, I still think, I still think that it was such a waste that he didn't go back. And I think we'd have gone further. I think, actually, I think some guys in RT are currently making a documentary, a television documentary about what might have happened if Keane came back. Let's talk about other things, though, because I mentioned that you covered the peace process and you would have interviewed so many people involved in it over the years. But I've been reading some of your work recently in relation to United Ireland and Mary Lou MacDonald suggesting that we will have in our lifetime a United Ireland and talking about border poles in five to ten years' time. But from your experiences living in Belfast as a Sligo man, you... I think it would be fair to say, while you love the idea of a united Ireland, you have reservations as to how we could make it work. Well, I live in the real world, not just in Sligo or on the island of Ireland. But when you live in the real world and when you drive past the children's hospital as it grows, or when you travel and you look at the road, the lack of a motorway from uh, Limerick uh, to Cork, uh, and these are obvious things. And then I have travelled for 20 years between the jurisdictions, between Belfast and Sligo. And I know the differences. I think I know unionism. I think I have a fair idea of how Republicans think. And I think I know the difference between southern and northern politics. Uh, And in relation to Sinn Féin, I think one of the dramatic things that has happened is violence has stopped during our lifetime. And I don't see... Even if things collapse, I don't see any future for guerrilla warfare. I don't see people being able to put a bomb under a neighbour's car or, you know, false checkpoints being erected and people being shot. I think the way technology has moved on, you couldn't do that anymore because of cameras here, there and everywhere. Do I see unionists, um, if they felt they were being sold by the river, by the British as well as by everybody else? Do I see street protests? Do I see them making things very, very awkward? I think they have that potential for uh, social unrest. I think that's there. hope it won't happen. I don't see war or what we call war. I don't see our terrorism. I don't ever see that happening on a grand scale. But I think Sinn Féin have left that side of the Republic. Armed struggle is over. I think they've made much more progress compared to the DUP. Uh, I think the reason they've done that is because their second field of operations was south of the border. 
The DUP's second field of operations was Westminster, where there are minnows, and they're always going to be minnows, stroke non-entities. Apart so, from one very brief period where they had the balance of power, and yeah. in retrospect probably played their hand very badly. Well, yeah, it was... <laughs> It was, there were false gods and it was a sugar hit and it was, you know, it brought them down a wrong path in terms of Brexit. But Sinn Féin now have incrementally grown in the South. Um, Mary Lou MacDonald, not Sherry Adams, is leading the party. If she is going to be in opposition, not just now, but for another five years, that would give her seven years on opposition benches. People within the party will naturally start to look past her. So I think their time is coming. I know uh, the numbers can be construed in a way that Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael could go into coalition again. But I think they're, look, even the budget shows how they look over their shoulders at the shinners. Like the backseat passengers are, are, influenced the nature, are influencing the nature of the journey. So I think their time is coming in government. And I think that's brilliant in terms of the United Ireland debate. Because if they are given responsibility, we'll see how good they handle it. And then when they bring the bigger project to the table, and it is an enormous project, bigger than anything we've ever done, then I think the timing is going to be interesting. Well, just one final thing, because this happened after your memoir, Never Better, has been published. We've had the latest census from Northern Ireland, and a lot of people pointing out the growth of a Northern Irish identity rather than Irish or British, and also pointing out that there are more Catholics nominally than nominal Protestants, but how much does religion actually any more denote how people will vote. And you're fascinating about the idea, for example, that for economic reasons in the North, even how the mobility laws in relation to cars point out that there might be a lot of people that you would think of as voting for United Ireland who might think, but if I do that, will I keep my car? Explain that to me. Well, the mobility scheme we don't have here. The mobility scheme in the UK means that if you are classed as disabled, you are entitled to a free car every replaced every three years with free tax and insurance. The only thing you've got to do is put petrol in it. Uh, and there can be three named drivers for that scheme. Now, people down here know nothing about that. That's how it operates. That's one of, say, the advantages of living in Northern Ireland. Their education system, like I heard... But sorry, if you were to... The, the possibility of that couldn't be afforded in United Ireland might persuade some of the beneficiaries that I'm not going into a United Ireland if I'm not going to be able to keep my car. Well, could we afford that? In the, could we introduce this? Could, could you imagine a budget where that would be announced in the Republic? Um, look at the health service. Have you got VHI? I do. Or whatever, some yeah. other. You're like 50% of the people in the Republic. Yeah. In Northern Ireland maximum 4% of the people have that. One in 25. Because they're so used to the National Health Service and this in Northern Ireland, the longest waiting queues in the UK. But how do you merge a system where 50% of people here have private insurance? One in 25 up north have it. Uh, Everyone has access to hospitals, free GP care in Northern Ireland. We don't have that down south. You think you're going to do that in the next 10 years? Um, I, I can't see that happening in practical terms. But a final point I'll make to you about that. The people who will influence the pace of the United Ireland debate in many respects are unionists. If they try to create a place that has the best of both worlds, they'll calm things down. They'll increase that Northern Ireland identity population. People who say, it's not a bad old place here, cheaper than the South. 
Housing is cheaper. Mm, free GP care. Mobility not bad. Okay, uh, there's no such thing in Northern Ireland as a third level grant. Everyone going to third level in Northern Ireland gets a loan. So different than 30 years ago. Uh, and when you see all those different things, if Northern Ireland could settle down and take the fruits of the Brexit conundrum, uh, you could see that Northern Ireland population grow. And final, final thing is for the Catholics and the Protestant things, uh, Protestant numbers, go to Mass in Northern Ireland any Sunday. And I'll tell you something, you won't see 40% of the population in churches. Just like in the South, mass going is, you know, it's a sunset industry in many respects. They might be nominally Catholic, but are they all United Ireland, uh, um, uh, fully-fledged Catholics? Not not so. We have to leave it there. It's a great read, never better, Tommy Gorman's autobiography, and it's great to have the opportunity to chat to you. Thank you very much for joining us here on The Last Word. Lovely to be here, and thanks for, for the privilege of being here, Matt. On the pirates. Among the pirates. <laughs> Buccaneers. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Weekdays from 4.30. Today,